Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 18 to 22. This is the word of God. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. bow your heads with me in prayer, please. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. It is a difficult passage, Father. Um, We pray for your spirit um, to teach us, to speak to us, to open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, we pray for those that are wounded here this morning, uh, that they would know your comfort. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we live in avalanche country, Now I'm not talking about the hockey team, but I think it's safe to say that Denver's best professional sports team is the Colorado Avalanche. Sorry, Broncos fans, but it's just true. You know, avalanches are an incredibly destructive event. They wipe out trees. They move boulders the size of cars. They can knock down buildings. They scar the land. They kill people every year. Drive around the high country and you'll see many avalanche scars on the side of the mountain. I sat down with a friend a couple of weeks ago and we talked about David and Bathsheba. And I mentioned that it all started. The whole event started with David not going out to war in the springtime like kings are supposed to do. He stayed back. Had he fulfilled his duty as king, if he had been doing the things that he should have been doing, it's possible that none of this happens. He commented, wow, things really started to snowball. When we come to the second half of David's story, we find not just a snowball, but an absolute avalanche of sin that wipes out not just Uriah and David, And David and Bathsheba's firstborn son, but his daughter Tamar, and his firstborn son Amnon, and his thirdborn son Absalom as well. The teenage philosopher likes to ask, if a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? Setting aside sort of the the self-centered view of the world that would even ask that question, uh, we know that the answer is yes. And so it is with our sin, even our sinful thoughts, which never make it to the light of day of outward behavior, they affect us. And not only us, they affect others as well. 
The impacts of sin are great. We'll see the continuation of that in David's family today. There's an incestuous sexual assault, a carefully planned murder, a failure to pursue justice and manipulation. They continue, and this really continues throughout the rest of David's life. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. What I hope to show you today is that while the impacts of sin are great, the impact of forgiveness is even greater. But I want to warn you, this is a difficult passage. I will address the very sensitive and difficult topic of sexual assault. So our outline is as follows, unspeakable horror, unlicensed vengeance, unresisting passivity, and finally, unmerited favor. Point one in your outline, unspeakable horror. And I'm just going to read for you, uh, starting in verse one of chapter 13, and then make some comments as we go. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Again, Amnon is David's firstborn. He's really David's favorite son. Absalom is his third son. And Tamar, his daughter, by the same wife as Absalom. Amnon made himself ill, it says, over Tamar. But this isn't lovesick. This is a man who has built up lust for power and domination over another person. Even without even looking ahead, we know that something is off because the narrator says it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her, not anything for her, not anything with her, but anything to her. Skip ahead with me to verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see Amnon, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamnar come and Tamar, come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his side and baked the cakes. She took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. At the request of her father, King David, Tamar has sweetly come to attend to her sick brother. Perhaps she's known as one of the best cooks in, the David, in David's house. So she makes these cakes and comes to Amnon, who refuses to eat them. He sends everyone away and beckons her into his bedchamber. And as she drew near to him to feed him, he grabbed hold of her. You can only imagine Tamar's initial confusion and then terror and dread when she realizes what is happening. Her half-brother has made everything up and got her alone that he might violate her. Verse 12, she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where would I carry my shame? And as for you, 
you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold you from me. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Tamar does everything within her power to stop his attack. She uses reason. Such a thing is not done in Israel. Don't do this outrageous thing. She uses personal appeal. Where would I carry my shame? And what about you? You'll be an outrageous fool. She bargains. Just ask our father. He won't deny you. He'll give me to to you. Now, whether or not that was true, it honestly didn't matter. She was using every weapon at her disposal to get out of this situation. But Amnon was controlled only by his lust for power, and so he raped her. In less than a handful of minutes, her life would be torn to shreds. But what comes after is in some ways even more devastating, continuing in verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, but this is wrong in sending me away. This, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. After violating Tamar, Amnon hates her with hate greater than the lust that he felt for her. He despises her and has contempt for her. I'm sure pop psychologists have some kind of an explanation for his reaction, but I think the Bible makes it perfectly clear. Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 7, he says this, The world hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. Tamar testified to the evil that Amnon did to her, and he hated her for it. Amnon says, put this woman out of my presence. But in Hebrew, the word woman is not there. So literally what he said is this, put this out of my presence. Put this thing out of my presence. It wasn't enough to assault her. He had to treat her like refuse. His dehumanization of Tamar is complete. Continuing in verse 18, Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Tamar turns out to the street and wails, despairing her violation and returns to Absalom. The ashes on her head are just an outward sign of her inward horror. Verse 20, and her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, my brother, been with you? Your brother been with you. Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. This is one of the most gut-wrenching stories in all of Scripture. God inspired the narrator to include this story for a reason, however. And there's much that we can learn about the intensely personal and horrifying nature of sexual assault. And we can learn 
much that we can learn about how not to help those who've suffered sexual abuse. I mean, this is one of only a very few passages in all of Scripture that talk about these kinds of things. But I would submit to you that's not why this is here. And we will talk more about those things later. But I don't think this is why the narrator put this passage here. The narrator has included this to show us what triggered Absalom to plot his coup of David's kingdom. If David's adultery with Bathsheba was the trigger event, this is the giant slab of ice and snow breaking off and beginning a fast, furious, and destructive avalanche down the mountain. And here's what we need to know. Here's what we need to know before we move on. We must not underestimate the impact of sin. I mean, sure, the really big ones, like what David did, are easy to see, right? But don't think that the acceptable sins, like contempt and envy, like impatience and anger, like apathy and laziness, are without impact. They impact your soul. They deaden your conscience to the Holy Spirit's promptings, and it becomes easier to sin. Do you think, for example, that when David saw Bathsheba bathing, that it was the first time that that happened? Do you really think that that's the case? I don't think so. The more we allow these little things to take hold, the harder it is for God to get through to us. As Lars reminded us last week, we become blind. We become blind to it. And we hurt ourselves and others. So my plea to you this morning is don't be the start of an avalanche. Be killing sin. Otherwise, it's going to be killing you and people around you. Replace that sin with godliness. Indeed, the effects of sin are very great. And in Tamar's case, it wasn't even her sin, but the sin of her brother who buried her. Absalom would not stand for this violence against his sister and her dignity. 2 Samuel Chapter 13, 22 says, But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister. And so he begins his plot for vengeance. And that takes us to our second point in the outline, unlicensed vengeance. The book Without Remorse is a classic Tom Clancy novel. The lead character is uh, John Kelly. He's a former Navy SEAL turned CIA operative. And his whole mission in life is to Get justice and do it without remorse. It's a great book. When asked about what the book is about, Clancy said, the central question in the book is this. What is justice? How is justice applied? What if you're in the situation where a great wrong has been done and the law does not respond to it? Now, is your duty as a citizen just to forget about it and permit society as a whole to make that mistake? Or is your duty as a citizen to become an instrument of justice? if you can do so in a controlled and structured and just way, an important qualifier there. Do you have the moral right to become the instrument of justice yourself? Now, it's a good question, and it's one that Absalom answered very quickly. But then he waited for two years to act. The narrator tells us that two years after Tamar's violation, Absalom invited David and all his brothers to his place for a big sheep-shearing party. 
I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like fun. Maybe it's their version of Oktoberfest. I don't know. David declines, but all his sons go. It was, just, it was setting up just as Absalom had hoped. His plan was to kill Amnon at the party, and it would be easier if David wasn't there. And so David's holding back. It's just all the other sons who are coming. And that's exactly what happened. Amnon got drunk, and Absalom had his servants kill Amnon. Absalom took justice into his own hands, and he did so without remorse. Messengers rushed back to David and said that all his sons were dead. But Jonadab, Amnon's crafty counselor, says this in verse 32. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. And this is the important part. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day Amnon violated his sister. Absalom plotted this for two full years. It was cold-blooded murder. It wasn't justice. He harbored hate in his heart toward Amnon. And of course, we know that hate is on the spectrum of murder. When you hate someone, Jesus said, you're effectively murdering them in your heart. So it's not terribly surprising that in Absalom's case, it resulted in actual murder. But what about justice? Is this justice for Tamar? Now, us macho guys think we'd you know, make the perpetrator pay. I know every father in here, if you're honest with yourself, has thought that's what you'd do. You'd make him pay. But would that be right? Isn't there a system of laws Judges, courts, and a penal system to do that? Well, Absalom didn't have that, so what about him? There there was no rule of law back then. The king was the law. So why didn't he go to the king? We'll find out soon enough, but suffice to say that this murder, that after this murder, Absalom knew he had to make a getaway. He left for three years while David simmered. And eventually, through Joab's manipulation, using the wise woman of Tekoa, David allows Absalom to come back to Jerusalem, setting up the tragic events of Absalom's coup and everything that followed. The effects of sin continue, then, to plow down the mountain like an avalanche. First, Tamar's desolation, then Amnon's murder, now Absalom's banishment, But there is one thread that runs throughout all of these events, and that takes us to point three in our outline. It's unresisting passivity. And of course, that's David's unresisting passivity. Pop rock band Weezer sings, if you want to destroy this sweater, hold this thread as I walk away. Well, if we want to find the thread that holds this chapter together, I think we must look at David. He's our hero, he's our champion, a man after God's own heart. That hasn't changed. But he is a weak man. He is a flawed man. And his weakness shows up over and over again in these two chapters. It's painful. And it really shows up mostly in his passivity. Let's start with Tamar. Her grief and devastation were obvious. Her ruin before the community and family were complete. It was total. She lived the rest of her life desolate. It's the same, that word for desolate is the same word from Lamentations 1.16 and 3.11 for those who are destroyed by their enemies and torn to shred. 
shreds by animals. And so let's look at verse 20. David, what do you do? Let's look at verse 21 really quick. What does David do? He's our hero. What does he do? When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Good for you, David. Maybe he was even furious. But what does he actually do? Nothing. That would be like, that'd be like after 9-11, if President Bush said, you know, I'm just really, I'm really upset about this. But then nothing happened. How disappointing would that have been? What about justice for the 2,977 people who lost their lives that day? And it would have been a green light for even more attacks, just like that one. I mean, David is the king. He had a duty to hold forth justice and punish Amnon. But he didn't. What's going on here? I mean, this is not a guy who's passive. This is a guy who's proactive. What's happening? Well, I think it's this. When he sinned with Bathsheba, and then he doubled down on his sin by by having Uriah killed at the front lines of the battle, I think he lost his moral authority. I think he felt like, who am I to carry out the Lord's justice when I have been so such a bad person myself. I think that's a big part of what's going on. But even if that's the case, he had a duty. And now what about Tamar's soul? Forget about justice, right? Maybe justice was never going to happen for whatever reason to, to Amnon. What about Tamar? She's left desolate. One of the reasons that Satan loves sexual abuse so much is that it often comes by the hands of those we trust. It comes by those in power. And so victims of sexual abuse make a logical conclusion. If the person that I trusted abused me in this way, it made me feel this way about myself, How can I trust God? That's why Satan loves it so much. It makes your faith in God look foolish. Sexual abuse can obscure God. He he seems distant and far, completely unrelated to where you are in your existence, in your experiences. It leaves victims feeling powerless, hopeless, disgraced, and ashamed. And a soul without hope doesn't live long. A woman who was a victim of sexual assault said, I can so relate to Tamar. She's tearing her robes in grief and lament because her heart has been torn. It's like she's saying, I'm ruined for love, loveless and worthless. I'm no longer a loved, worthy child of the king. I'm I'm taking off the king's garments. I'm now useless for the kingdom. I'll make it to heaven, but I'll have nothing to offer my king because my soul has nothing to offer anyone. Tamar is ruined. No justice, 
and no consolation, and David did nothing. And then lastly, as we think about the David's thread that runs throughout this, these two chapters, why didn't David deal with Absalom? You know, on the one hand, Absalom's vengeance is, is understandable, but it is by no means acceptable. Instead of taking action to bring Absalom to justice, David stewed over the death of Amnon and Absalom's escape. I want you to look at verses 39 of chapter 13 and verse 1 of chapter 14. I'm going to read it to you from the ESV, but I just want to prompt you. I think there's, well, I think there's, a, there's another way to, to interpret these verses. So this is what the ESV says. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. (laughs) And I do say this with all humility. With all due respect to the ESV translation committee, I think they got this one wrong. I looked at 12 different commentaries on this, and in a ratio of 2 to 1, they agreed that a more likely translation of these two verses is as follows. The king's spirit longed to go out against Absalom, for he was still upset over the death of Amnon. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's mind was fixed on Absalom. He was consumed with thoughts of Absalom. And all that transpires in chapter 14, and we're just not going to cover it, we just don't have enough time, but just, I'll give you a brief summary. All that transpires in chapter 14 leads me to believe that this is the correct way to interpret these verses. Again, David did not take action to bring Absalom to justice. And so Joab devises this really complex ruse using this wise woman of Tekoa who effectively, for lack of a better way, kind of tricks David into getting Absalom back into Jerusalem. Okay, so now Absalom's back in Jerusalem, right? Now they're going to be forgiven and reconciled and everything will be... No. Absalom was in Jerusalem for two years before he could even come into the king's presence. Guys, that's not forgiveness, and it definitely ain't reconciliation. So things weren't right between David and Absalom. People were acting on David the whole time as he sat there passively instead of him moving out and actively being a part of even his own life. It stands in such stark contrast to who he's been up to this point. But again, I think the root of David's passivity comes back to his loss of moral authority by his sin with Bathsheba in the murder of Uriah. If I did such a horrible thing, he's thinking, how can I exercise moral authority over others? And so we see yet another devastating effect of the avalanche of sin. It's like his sin is coming back on itself and compounding again. Scientists say that nature abhors a void, right? Space is a void. If you're an astronaut on a spacewalk and have a major tear in your spacesuit, it's all over. Because all the oxygen you need to live is sucked out of the suit into the void of space. And really, it's actually no different in leadership. When leaders don't lead, bad stuff happens. David's passivity creates a void of leadership that keeps the avalanche of sin rolling down the mountain. But that is not the end of the story. 
I said I wanted to show you that the effects of sin are great. And honestly, you didn't need me to show you that. You could have just read these two chapters to see how awful the effects of sin are. But I also said that I wanted to show you that the effects of forgiveness are even greater. That's a little bit harder to find in this passage, but it takes us to our last point, unmerited favor. Sometimes we can learn about something by knowing what it's not. And so I think that's what I want to do here with David. In every way that David failed, Jesus succeeds. David failed Tamar. Jesus never fails those who've been abused, especially victims of sexual abuse. Think about Mary in the way that even that Jesus values women. Think about Mary Magdalene. She had the honor of being the first to his tomb. Or think about the woman at the well. He was speaking to a woman in broad daylight who was a Samaritan. Think about how he cared for his mother. Here Jesus is on the cross, dying, near his last breath. He looks at his mother and he says, Woman, behold your son. And then he looks to John, the disciple whom he loved. And he said, Behold your mother. From the cross. How cool is that? In every way that David failed Tamar, Jesus will make it right. Where David didn't respond, Jesus does. Now, I will say, many of us have a difficult time responding, even talking about sexual abuse. It is really uncomfortable and really hard. But let me just tell you this. I can guarantee you that you know someone, and I would bet you know multiple people, who are the victims of sexual abuse. You just don't know who they are. You just don't know who they are. And so I think it's important then for us to know if we're ever in that situation that we don't mess it up, frankly, by doing a couple of things that would be easy to do. The first would be to kind of act like Absalom. We're uncomfortable and we don't even really want to acknowledge it. We kind of wish it would just sort of go away, right? And so even though we would never verbalize things this way, our unspoken things, our body language, the way that we react to this, it's saying to the victim, get over it. Don't talk about it. It will go away. Just shove it down. Time will heal your wounds. That doesn't work. The other way that we would react incorrectly, and I, and I appreciate the heart behind this, I really do, is to rush in and tell God's story of hope and redemption before we've even heard our friend's story. A soul who suffered this kind of abuse must be heard. Part of rebuilding trust in God starts in rebuilding trust in others. And that starts with listening, but not just listening. It means entering into the grief and shame with them, grieving with them, lamenting with them. Can you imagine if David had taken Tamar aside and said, my sweet child, I am so grieved over what has happened to you. But I know how, how to lament. Let me show you how to lament. Don't you think the greatest writer 
of laments could have helped his daughter through this? I read a very helpful pamphlet on counseling the victims of sexual assault called Sexual Abuse, Beauty for Ashes by Robert Kellerman. He uses the story of Tamar in a real-world counseling situation to show how we can minister to those who have suffered sexual abuse. He concludes the, the, the pamphlet by envisioning a scenario where David brings Tamar to his house and he comforts her and he tells her, just like I know, just like God forgave me for my great sin, I know that he will comfort you in your deep grief. And then the author of this pamphlet paints a scene where he says, Tamar, come with me. And he takes her into this huge closet where there are hundreds of robes set aside for the virgin daughters of the king. And he says to her, pick out a robe. And she says, but father, I can't. I'm not pure anymore. And he says to her, oh, but you are. You are in my eyes, and you are in the eyes of the king of kings. She picks out a robe and is known as a woman of great grace and gentle mercy for the rest of her life. What a beautiful saying. There is hope for the victims of sexual abuse. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, gives us a beautiful picture of what this hope is like. What a wonderful passage. Listen as I read these words to you. And this is, this is Isaiah who penned this, but I think this is the Lord Jesus saying these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. To grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them, this is so beautiful, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes on the head, a beautiful headdress. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he, that he may be glorified. If you are a victim of sexual abuse, and need to talk to someone about it. Your pastors are here. And understand, you may not be comfortable talking to us, especially if you're a woman. And we appreciate that. There are those that you can talk to who are females as well. We are here to relieve the hopelessness and shame and false guilt that comes with sexual assault. Jesus wants you, wants to give you, the beauty of his righteousness for the ashes of your shame. He can and he will. So David failed Tamar. David also failed to do justice, but Jesus loves justice. I appreciate a good vengeance story. (laughs) 
because it feels like justice is being served. And I know I'm not alone. We're all made in God's image. We all bear his desire for justice to one degree or another, but none of us, marred by the effects of sin, can approach the love of justice and the complete intolerance for injustice as God. One of my favorite verses from Job is chapter 26 and verse 14. Job has just been expounding upon how God is the creator and how powerful and amazing he is. And he says this in verse 14. Behold, all these things that I've just said about how amazing God is, these are just the outskirts. These are just the fringes. This is just a sample of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. And so it is with the Lord's justice. That little bit of anger that comes up in you, that injustice, friends, that's just a little piece of how the Lord feels about injustice. There's common error when, we, when thinking about God, that when we think about justice, that, that really he'll brush aside our small sins and he's really only concerned about the really bad things, Right? We could fool ourselves into thinking that he'll overlook kind of our, what we'll call, acceptable sins. Cussing, gossip, laziness, overindulgence in food and drink, a little lust here and there, maybe a sprinkling of contempt for others, lack of patience and forgiveness. I mean, these are just so common to human existence that God doesn't really get bent out of shape about them, right? Well... Romans 1.18 tells us different. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The key phrase is all ungodliness and unrighteousness, not just the big stuff like rape and murder. Paul follows that up in Romans 3.10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So here's the thing. If you were like me, as I wrestled with this text, I stood in judgment of David and Amnon and Absalom. It made me feel good. I mean, I created a law. They violated that law. And I didn't, so I was able to judge them. You know, honestly, that's not a whole lot different than what you see in the cancel culture, right? It's just a new form of legalism. Hey, if you do all these right things, you're on the inside. If you don't do these right things, you're canceled, you're out, you're a sinner. They would use that word. It's the same idea. But here's the thing. God's law doesn't stop with the big stuff. It doesn't stop there. I don't get to make up what the law is. Only he does. And so in this regard, I'm no different than those three men. I fall short. We all fall short. And we will all be judged, but not by each other but by the perfect, holy, and righteous God. Revelation 20, verse 12, the great white throne judgment. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. God's justice will be satisfied. Because his holiness cannot overlook any sin. But God has made a way for his justice to be satisfied and for the ashes of our sin to be turned into the beauty of Christ's righteousness. And unlike David, who stood aloof from Absalom and never truly forgave or restored him, unlike cancel culture, unlike you and me, who are quick to judge and condemn and slow to forgive, God is different. There may be no sweeter illustration of the power of forgiveness than the parable of the parable of the prodigal son, right? I know many of you know this parable so well, but just a quick review. The two sons, the younger son says, Dad, give me, ha- give me all of my inheritance now, which is effectively the same way of saying, like, I don't want any part of you. I'm going to do my own thing. The father obliges him. He goes off. He spends it on wild living, finds himself feeding the pigs. He wishes he could eat the pods that the pigs are eating. He says, you know what? I can go back and work for my dad. He'll, I, I'll eat better there than I am right now. Maybe he'll accept me as a servant. So as the prodigal son is returning, the father sees him from a distance. And what does the father do? Does he cross his arms and wait for him to get there and Say, I told you so. I told you. You shouldn't have taken that money. I knew you were going to blow it. You know what the father does? He gets all undignified. He gathers up his robes and he starts running for his son. That's the same kind of forgiveness that God the Father has for you. It's an unmerited favor. It's the unmerited favor of forgiveness that can slow down and even stop the avalanche of sin. But it doesn't come free. It doesn't come free. Forgiveness is costly. And it costs Jesus his life. His life on the cross for your life, clean and forgiven, restored to God. And when you take these two things together, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, and that God graciously forgives all who turn from their sin and come to him, you end up with three, I'll just give you three closing thoughts. First, what if you started the avalanche? What if you're the one that's, you're here this morning, you're like, I kind of started the avalanche. My family's a mess. Like, my life is a mess. You can be forgiven. It's not just for good people. Remember Romans 3.10, there's no one good, not even one, who appears, just not for them that appear to have it all together, it's for the rapist, the murderer, the abuser, the adulterer, the addict. God's grace in the cross is infinite. All you must do is turn and repent and trust. What if you were buried What if you were somebody who got buried in the avalanche? It wasn't your sin. It was somebody else's sin that buried you. Let me just tell you right now, Jesus will come and find you. You may not think you have a beacon, but you do. 
He will come and find you and dig you out and set you on solid ground. He will restore you. And it's possible for you to even forgive the person that harmed you. You don't necessarily have to be reconciled to them. Let's not confuse those two things. But you can forgive them. And lastly, what if you were just somebody that was looking on the avalanche? You didn't start it, you weren't in it, but you're watching the whole thing. You need forgiveness for judging others whose struggles are much more obvious than yours. You need forgiveness for taking lightly the height and depth and width and breadth of the cross of Christ. And so while the impact of sin in our lives is very great, the impact of the forgiveness that we have in Christ through his cross is far, far greater. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. God, we are so thankful for the sweet forgiveness that we have through your son, Jesus. Lord, we know that we all need it in, in different measure, in different ways, but we all know that we fall short. And we're so thankful that you have provided a way through your son, Jesus, that even such terrible situations, such an avalanche of sin that we see in David's family um, can be healed. It can be fixed. It can be restored. It might not even be in this life, Father, but we know that ultimately you will make all things right. You love justice too much not to. We thank you that you took your just wrath on our sin out on Jesus. Lord, bless us as we go. Help us to be ministers of grace and mercy and forgiveness to one another, just as you have been to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.